Good morning, everybody. Um, my name is Ashley, and it's such a joy to be here with you this Sunday morning. Um, today, our scripture is from Genesis chapter 32, verses 22 through 32. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket on Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Ashley. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Josh Youssef. I am one of the elders here at Christ Covenant. Been a member for, Emily and I have been members for about three years. Been an elder for a little over a year. Uh, I think the last time, I don't, I'm not on staff, by the way. I run an organization called Help the Persecuted. Grateful for the partnership between this church and the work that I do in the Middle East and North Africa. But the last time I preached was two years ago at Sutton Middle School, and there were about 150, maybe 150 people there, so the Lord has clearly added to our number. I've got to do this for a third time tonight at five. I never, never thought two years ago we'd see this many people, but God's been good. This morning's text it, uh, it comes in the middle of a great deal of action. When I was at Auburn, I took a uh, film class. We learned this phrase, in medias race, which is when the action begins at the middle. And indeed, you're probably wondering who this guy is. It's in the woods and why he's wrestling with a strange man. And so I think in order to give us some context, we have to look back at Jacob's life and who his grandparents were and who his parents were. You see, Jake, Jacob is the son of Isaac. Isaac is the son of Abraham. Abraham had a covenant with God. God said, I'll make your people as numerous as the stars. And Jacob, Abraham was not a perfect person. He had, you know, lied when he went to Egypt. He told Pharaoh that his wife, Sarah, was not his wife and it was his sister. Pharaoh was pretty upset about that. Isaac his son did the same thing to Abimelech. So next comes Jacob and Esau, the twins. 
The prophecy said about them says that the older will serve the younger, which is very unusual in that part of the world. In that time, that's not how it works, but that's what it said. The older will serve the younger, and Rebekah gives birth to Esau first. Esau comes out, and Jacob is holding on to his foot in the, as he comes out of the womb, and so they name him. Sometimes you see it as the supplanter or takes by the heel or the cheater. That's what they named Jacob. The boys could not be any uh, more different. Uh, Genesis 25 says that Esau was a skilled hunter and Jacob liked to dwell in tents, which is kind of a nice way of saying he was a mama's boy. He preferred cooking over hunting. It reminds me of the movie Legends of the Fall when Brad Pitt plays Tristan. Tristan's this kind of edgy, outdoorsy, you know, uh, untamed uh, one of the brothers, and the other brothers are kind of more refined. I always think about that when I think of Jacob and Esau. You know, I reference Jacob's name as being the supplanter or being the cheater, and in many ways, right, he fulfills that in his life. He is constantly grasping at earthly blessings. Uh, he is an outright cheater. Uh, in one instance, he sells, he tries to get his brother Esau and is successful in doing so. He gets him to sell his birthright for a bowl of lentil soup. Esau comes in from hunting. He's very hungry. Jacob says, doesn't this smell good? Wouldn't you like a bowl of this? Why don't you give me your birthright? I don't, we don't have birthrights here. That's not something, but it's, it's a blessing. It's a, something very important in that time period. And so he takes the birthright. And then there's a blessing that's due Esau at the end as the, as the oldest. And Jacob steals that. He at the, even gets the help of his mother to help him. And they have props and everything. Would take me a whole sermon to preach that text. But suffice it to say that Esau is a very angry man at Jacob for what he's done. He's very angry at the fact that Jacob is a liar. Jacob is a cheat. Jacob is constantly undermining Esau. And so Esau threatens to kill him. And what do the parents do? They, they send him to his uncle. They send Jacob to his uncle's house, Uncle Laban. I got in one little fight and my mom got scared. <laughs> you, okay. Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Anyway, I had another Will Smith joke in there, but I think it's too soon. Um, so he goes to his uncle Laban's house, and Laban is like an equally skeezy, cheating schemer than Jacob is. He's finally met his match. And Jacob meets his wife, or I should say wives, at, at Laban's house. And Laban says, if you work for me for seven years, I'll give you the one you want. He works for him for seven years, and the night before his wedding, Laban gives him the daughter that Jacob didn't want. And again, that would take a whole other sermon for me to kind of unpack, but suffice it to say that Laban is a schemer, and maybe, maybe Jacob is starting to see a mirror with Laban. Maybe he's looking back at his own life, and he's saying, hmm, maybe that's what I did to my brother. Maybe I'm the skeezy one. And so the Lord instructs Jacob and says, you got to go home. It's time to go home. Go be with your family. You can leave. And so he leaves. 
And some of his men, as they're heading home, some of his messenger men come back to Jacob and they say, okay, Esau is over the hill. There's 400 men. He's got 400 men with him. Be prepared. And Jacob gets scared. Jacob's very fearful at this point. And it's worth noting that Jacob, rather than just stew in his fear, he actually goes to the Lord. He seeks the Lord in a prayer. And I want to read you that prayer from Genesis 32. So it's the preceding chapter that was written. O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I have crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear that he may come and attack me. The mothers with the children, but you said, I will surely do you good. And make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. I had preached from this sermon five years ago. And as I looked over my notes, I came to the conclusion that I think I was too hard on Jacob. I thought this was a foxhole prayer. A Lord, get me out of a jam prayer. But before we get into the text, I just want to say three things about Jacob's early posture at this point, this early humility that we're starting to see, the, the break in the dam. Number one, Jacob returns home, or his return home is an act of repentance and a desire to seek restitution. There are some echoes here of Luke 15 and the story that Jesus tells of the prodigal son. Even the, the prayer, uh, before the prayer, uh, Jacob refers to Esau as my Lord. His posture is starting to bend towards humility. And the second thing is, this prayer is evidence of Jacob's trust in God and in his promises. As I said earlier, it's the longest prayer. It's the first time that we see Jacob praying. It's the longest prayer in the whole book of Genesis. But there are three things in here that are really interesting that I think we should model our own prayer life after. The first is confession. The second is petition. And the third is confidence, confidence in what the Lord has done to his, for his grandfather, his father, and for him and what he said. It is the first step that we must take in seeking the Lord's help. The third thing is the fact that he prays is evidence that he fears God over man. He fears God over man. At the teaching meeting on Wednesday, I think it was Barrett who brought up Matthew 10. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. See, in the preceding chapter, Jacob actually kind of makes amends with Laban, his uncle. So he could have very easily when he heard there were 400 men, he could have turned around and said, Laban, you know that little pact that we struck? I'm coming back to live with you. I can't, I can't face my brother, but he didn't. His act of prayer, his act of pursuing going back home is evidence of a greater trust in the Lord. 
I, I think at this time, people debate, you know, is, is this a salvation experience for Jacob? Uh, I'm going to say probably not. I, I, think he's a, I think he's of the covenant. I just don't think he fully trusted God. I don't know if he really knew God well. He had a, a knowledge of God, and he certainly had heard the stories of his grandfather and his father telling about the goodness of God, but I don't know if he had a, he certainly had an, had an, had an encounter like we just read. He knew about God, but he didn't know God. Had some encounters with him in Bethel. But this prayer, this offering of restitution to Esau communicates that Jacob is moving into a deeper trust of, of God and a deeper relationship with him. Two Sundays ago, uh, Margot at her baptism, she, she quoted from Matthew 7. She said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Margot then said, I knew about God. I knew about Jesus, but I didn't know him. I wasn't in a relationship with him. The fact that God just doesn't want us to maybe understand him in a, a polemical academic exercise, but he wants to have a relationship with us is an amazing truth. And that gets us to this morning's passage. God shows up. Jacob has lived a life of dishonesty and skeeziness, but he seeks the Lord in a desperate hour and the Lord shows up. And that's my first point, is that God appears to Jacob at a time of vulnerability. The text says, the same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had and Jacob was left alone. Jacob was alone in the dark without his family, without his servants. He'd already sent his wealth across. Now imagine the, the noise that 11 boys make. <laughs> And then all of a sudden, it's just quiet. <laughs> Sometimes uh, when the kids have a break and I have work, Emily will take the kids up to her parents' house in North Georgia, and I'm left alone in the house, and it's, a, it's an eerie thing. A quiet house after it's been very loud and boisterous is uh, disconcerting. Sometimes I'll this is kind of weird, but I'll like walk into their rooms and like imagine that they're there. That aloneness is a time of great reflection. Jacob must encounter God without his possessions, without his protection. And there's a word in there for us. In fact, I love, I love Baptism Sunday. I, I, I love it when people get up and tell their testimonies and oftentimes someone will get up and I can't tell you how many times I've heard someone say, I came to Atlanta from college and college was a lot of activity and a lot of excitement and 
I came to Atlanta, and this is kind of a cold city, can sometimes be inhospitable, and that's where the Lord met me, in my aloneness. Sometimes it's loss of a job. I, I, I think Caden's testimony was that, that there was great loss in a job, and the Lord shows up. He meets us at a point of great vulnerability. Christopher Yuan, I, my office is at uh, Reformed Theological Seminary up in Marietta. I'm a student there, and then I share an office there, and they told me that Christopher Yuan was coming to lecture. And Christopher Yuan wrote a book called Holy Sexuality. So I was very excited to go and meet him, and his testimony rocked me. He was born to these Chinese-American parents that were very, very uh, strong in their academics and their expectation of him, and he joined the Marines. His whole life, he'd struggled with same-sex attraction. He leaves the Marines, and he throws himself into that lifestyle. He starts taking drugs. He starts selling drugs, and then he becomes a supplier, a big-time supplier here in Atlanta. His father is witnessing to him. His father gives him his Bible, his Bible that had all of his notes in it, and these little sticky things and the highlighting. And, he, and as soon as his dad left, Christopher threw the Bible in the trash. A few weeks later, the feds knock on his door. He's sentenced to six years in jail. Goes to the federal penitentiary. He's alone. Looks down in the trash can in his cell, and there's a Gideon Bible. The Lord had brought back the Bible in the manner that he had gotten rid of it, and he begins to read it, and he can't stop reading it, and the Lord speaks to him, and the Lord thoroughly converts him. Sometimes the Lord has to strip us of the things that hinder our ability to hear him completely. He has to strip us in order for us to experience the change that we have to experience necessary to live this godly life. The second thing is that God wounds Jacob to heal him. God wounds Jacob in order to bring healing. It says in verses 24 and 25, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. It's not much of an introduction. There's no... Uh, I'm Yahweh, you've been, you know, upset with me and prepared to die, you know, kind of thing. There's no monologue, no introduction, no, no explanation. They're just all of a sudden, they're wrestling. And scholars have wondered, who is Jacob wrestling with? Is it an angel? Is it a, a member of the Godhead, some, some pre-Christ person? We don't know. But we know that this person was divinely sent, that this person was divine. Jacob is now wrestling with God. Jacob, one thing's for certain, Jacob is very strong. His carnal, self-sufficient, unyielding nature gives up a great fight. And the text says he wrestled with the man until daybreak. We know he's divine because only the supernatural can do what he did by touching his hip and wrenching it in such a way 
But Jacob's no longer able to actively wrestle. The text moves from wrestling to holding on and just grasping. At this point, he's just holding on to the Lord. I did a little bit of Googling on hip displacement. It would take a high-impact car crash to do what it did to Jacob as a healthy man. When Emily and I uh, first uh, became parents, we, uh, we really struggled a lot with disciplining our kids. We, we felt, I felt like there were times when I was overhanded and then there were times when I was weak and I just let them get away with things. But some godly people came around us and I remember one of them said to me, they said, Josh, break the will, but not the spirit. Break their will, but not their spirit which is in line with Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, provoke not your children in wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The fact that God doesn't destroy Jacob right there is evidence of his grace, his love for Jacob. He, He doesn't want to destroy Jacob. He wants to see him humbled. He doesn't want to break Jacob's spirit. He wants his spirit to yield to a posture of dependence on the Lord. It was Tim Keller who said, God has to wrestle us into a transformed life rather than comfort us into one. God has to wrestle us into a transformed life rather than comfort us into one. The the wrenching of Jacob's hip is the ultimate physical reminder that God loves Jacob enough to contend with him that God loves Jacob enough to humble him and not outright destroy him as he could. You know, I, when I wrestle my kids, I mean, this is kind of a morbid thought, but like I could destroy them. I mean, I'm a lot stronger than them. <laughs> That's not my goal. I love them. I want to put enough pressure onto them to where they might say, uncle, like I've had enough. And then I let up. I want them to get stronger. I want them to kind of learn some maneuvers and moves so they can apply later. Against their sisters, you know, the boys. God, in the same way, is not out to break us. He's not out to destroy us. He's out to conform us. You know, in the the book of Hebrews, it says, by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshiped as he leaned on the top of his staff, worshiped on the top of his staff. His hip was never the same, but his will was bent towards God. His hip probably always gave him trouble, but he rested in the Lord's power. 2 Corinthians 12, the apostle Paul is talking of humility. And he says, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties 
For when I am weak, then I am strong. You know, theologians have debated what was Paul's thorn. What was that thorn in his flesh? I know some people interpret it may have been a sin, but I don't think it's a sin. I don't think Paul would have boasted in his sin, as the text says. Some people think it could have been depression. Some think it might have been somebody who was constantly tormenting him with maybe his past. Maybe he had a physical ailment, an eye problem. Uh, You know, there was evidence that maybe he wasn't a great speaker, and so maybe he had a speech impediment. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Number three, God changes Jacob's identity. He changes his ID, changes his identity. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. Ultimately, Jacob is is changed as a result of this encounter with God. The Lord changes his name from the deceiver to the overcomer, or it says you have struggled with men and God and overcome. But he, he goes from deceiver or supplanter to overcomer. The exchange between Jacob and, the, and this divine being is not, there's not this, uh, hey, how are you? I'm Jacob. I'm God. Nice to meet you. No, there's a lot happening here. The first thing is, is that Jacob saying his name is the equivalent of us crying uncle. <laughs> he's giving up. He's, he's giving in to the Lord. Enough. You win. The second thing is, is it's an admission of guilt. He is in effect saying, I am Jacob the deceiver. I am, that is my name and that is who I am. And then God says, no, that's not who you are. He gets the new identity. Israel, the overcomer. Chris Renzima in his song, Jacob, which is about this text, he says, well, since she called me the deceiver, I admit that I believed her. And I know I should be grateful, but my heart is just so tangled in the words, in the lies, in the pain. So touch me, and I won't walk the same. Oh God, would you give me a name? Because all my lions just left one person to blame. God does not just meet Jacob. He doesn't simply change his heart, but he gives him a new identity. He doesn't have to scheme anymore. No more grasping for earthly blessings. No more running from Esau. He has the greatest blessing of all, a completely new identity. You know, I, I, I think I said this earlier. I, I love when I walk in on Sundays and see that tub. Your testimonies before you get baptized have so convicted me and encouraged me. And maybe best of all, they have created the best conversations in our car on the way home. And our kids ask lots of questions. One that really stands out. And they're all great, but there's one that really was like a bucket of cold water on my head. It was Hannah Lupus. 
And she said, this is not the declaration of a strong person boasting in their resilience, but a weak person who has been saved. She went on to say, I resented God and became selfish, a prolific liar and a cheater. This, this moment that Hannah had in her tra- being transparency, her transparency, it illustrates what's happening in this text, that Jacob is naming his sin. He is naming his past identity in order to be changed, in order to receive the new identity, a new name, no longer sinner, but saint, no longer the deceiver, but the overcomer. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose up as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. (laughs) This match left him with a limp. And in the next chapter, we learn that Jacob meets Esau, He crosses the river, he goes, he sees the 400 men, and this time, Jacob's not showing up with his head held high. He's not showing up in pride, he's not showing up as strong Jacob. He's bowing down and he's limping to his brother. And his brother, in tears, embraces him and they both start crying and they start catching up on what's happened over the years. And Jacob is saying to him, Esau, please take everything that I have, please do this. No longer grabby Jacob, but generous Jacob. No longer the calculating Jacob, but the kind Jacob. Growing up in Atlanta, my family was very close to a man, a very prominent man. A man whose name is on a lot of buildings, A self-made man? This man was a giant. One time he said to me, Josh, crying is for babies and women. One day this man was all alone. Something had happened to him. Something that kind of became public, very embarrassing. And he was all alone. And the gospel was shared to him that he could look to the cross for salvation, that he could look to Jesus and Jesus can make this right. Maybe not in the way that he wanted it to be right, but he can make you whole. And he was so overcome with emotion, so overcome with what the Lord had done for him, that from that day on, if you said the name of Jesus to this man, he would weep. He would weep uncontrollably. Sometimes it was almost embarrassing, but he took great pride in it. No longer was he this big, tall, prideful, buckhead businessman, but a broken, broken man of God. And God used it. God used it in my life to watch this man go from this to this. And in many people in Atlanta would say the same. Are you serving the Lord with a limp? Do you boast in your weaknesses 
so that the Lord can display his power in you and through you? Or are you relying on your self-sufficiency, your, your wits? For the comfortable that are here, maybe you need to hear that God is a wrestling God and he will discomfort you. And Keller points this out. He says, this is kind of disconcerting that God is like thrashing Jacob. But maybe for the uncomfortable who, who have come here, you need to hear that God loves you, that God is willing to contend with us, which is an amazing thing. Maybe you haven't come to the Lord. Maybe you don't know the Lord. Maybe you know of him, but you're not in a relationship with him. The good news is there are much greater wounds, much greater wounds than the hip displacement that Jacob experienced. They were these wounds right here and here and here. And perhaps the greatest wound of all was that God the Father and God the Son were separated. Christ did what we could not do. He lived the life we could not live, and he died the death and experienced the resurrection that we cannot do. And so you need to look to those wounds. The wounds which marred the chosen one as as we sing. So let us walk off this morning limping and displaying God's power. Let me pray. Lord, thank you that when we are weak, you are strong. Thank you that we rely and we can rely on your strength and not our own. And I ask, Lord, that this message would lead to the ears of the hearer to change and action for your sake and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.